Hi, this is Corey Olson. Welcome to class number five. And now let's get right into finishing our discussion of Mythopoeia. Okay, so uh, I want to start off by just doing a, a finishing up the, the end of Mythopoeia. We didn't quite get through. We actually came a little closer than I thought we would, but we didn't, uh, we didn't quite finish. Especially the last two stanzas uh, are where we left off. Um, and the last two stanzas are, are, are interesting sort of partners with each other. Uh, as you can see in the second to last stanza, it's, this is sort of his final address to the modern world, which, which he is in general condemning. Um, I, I really I'm, I find it very interesting how he begins. Uh, I will not walk with your progressive apes erect and sapient. Uh, and you notice the irony that he's pointing out there? Um, of course, what is his emphasis in saying progressive apes? What is he alluding to, Chris? Evolution, Evolution which is the idea that... And remember, he, he, he referred to this in On Fairy Stories. Remember, he says how some modern scholars will talk about uh, ancient stories and attribute to the ancient people who wrote them a basic kind of confusion about the distinction between animals and human beings, like they think that frogs can really turn into people. And, and of course, Tolkien points out how silly that idea is and how the stories wouldn't even make sense as stories if the people who wrote them actually were confused and thought that people could marry frogs. Um, but, of course, he then makes the counter-argument to say, actually, it's modern scientific man that confuses humans and animals. Uh, nobody previous to, uh, to recent generations actually believed that human beings were merely the same as animals. But, of course, that's exactly what evolutionary theory teaches us to believe. Um, he says not just that humans are animals. That has always been true. The, the, the classic definition of what is man, extending back thousands of years, is man is a rational animal. Right? We are like animals in every way, except one, that we have the power to reason. And... That basically he's saying that it's, it's modern scientific theories that are trying to blur that line. To say we are really, at essence, no more than animals. And yet, we are erect and sapient. Right? Of course, alluding to the two Latin phrases, homo erectus and homo sapiens. Right? Pointing out the irony of a modern world which says simultaneously, human beings aren't special. We're not different. We're just monkeys that are highly evolved. But at the same time says... We are wise and know all mysteries, and nothing is hidden from us. Uh, we are the ones, who, and uh, the idea of man being erect, uh, the, the significance of the, of the, uh, of the erectness of, of, of man is an old medieval idea, again, that connects with, with reason. Man alone, the medievals would say, among all the beasts, walks upright and looks up at the sky because our reason connects us upward uh, to the angels and to God, whereas the rest of the animals look down. Uh, at the ground, they are connected downwards uh, to the earth and to the, uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to, to the insensible things, that is, those things that don't have sensation, um, whereas man looks, looks upward. Um, but, of course, there's, there's a lot of irony in what he's saying here. Is that the modern world is very confused, he says. It wants to say, on the one hand, we're nothing special, and yet, also, we're the only thing that is. And our perspective is the only possible perspective. And as time goes on, we are progressive apes, right? Not just apes. We're, prog- we're getting smarter and wiser and figuring everything out. And soon we'll know everything that there is to know. And if we don't know it and if we don't recognize it, then it is obviously untrue and it must not exist. Right? This is 
One of the perspectives, again, remember that stuff about the voyages of discovery, right? We don't believe in fairyland anymore. We don't believe in wonders and marvels that we can't prove and that we can't perceive because we know everything that there is to know. And if we don't know it, it mustn't exist, right? Oh, but we're only apes. We're actually just the same as animals. I mean, he's pointing out, you know, gosh, we're really... Modern people seem to be really kind of confused on this point. Um, Where does progress lead? Never does he use progress in more heavy quotation marks than in this stanza of this poem. Where does progress lead, according to Tolkien here? Yes, the dark abyss. Uh, If by God's mercy, progress ever ends. Um, Obviously, he's extremely skeptical about the idea of the idea of progress. He does not think we're moving. Uh, He thinks we're moving, but he doesn't think we're really moving in a good direction here. I will not yet. I, I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. We talked some last time about the appropriateness of subcreation. Some people have asked um, on the discussion forum, there's been some of the discussion that I've been following there about especially that question of subcreation in Christianity and is it appropriate for Christians and how does that work. Um, he points out, you'll remember in one place in On Fairy Stories, it's true that this subcreative impulse of human beings has at times led people to create false gods, to create gods and then worship them. But the point that he makes from that is that is not a disease specific to the subcreative impulse. We do that all the time. In fact, the people who do that most, the people who do that worst, are the people who are resistant to subcreation. Remember, you know, the mechanical Circes, right? The, 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 the people who are twice seduced. Um, the people who create false gods um, and ask us all to worship them, he argues. You know, are, those, are, are, are the people who are talking about progress, who want us to worship industrialization, who want us to worship the idea of progress in the progressive man and, and to worship humanity itself? He says, you know, that's, that's, that's serious idolatry. Subcreation does sometimes, it, it can be corrupted, it can be, a, sub, a particular subcreation can be corrupt because a subcreator can be corrupt. People, you know, people are corrupt. But the subcreative impulse itself is a positive thing, is one of the only things that actually counteracts that impulse towards idolatry. All human beings have an impulse towards idolatry all the time. I mean, one of the, one of the themes of the Bible and the New Testament Human being, what, what sin is, is idolatry. It's the essence of all, of, it, it is what separation from God means. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve said, we don't want God to be the center. We're not going to obey what God tells us to do. Instead, we're going to look out for number one. We're thinking about ourselves. Eve says, hmm, it would be nice to be wise. I would kind of like to be in charge. That would be good. I could be like God? Sounds like a good plan, Right? And the self is placed at the heart instead of, uh, at the heart of things, at the heart of the will instead of God. And what happens as a result? The first thing that they do, start throwing each other under the bus, right? That's what happens when you are at the center. Uh, other people become, move further towards the outside. I say this because, again, when he talks about subcreation, this is one of the ideas that's at the heart of it. Humility. Remember, he's mentioned humility several times. To... to be open to a truth that is outside you. To be, unf- to be unfolding a leaf on the tree of tales, 
Not building up yourself, not expressing yourself, but to be participating in the greater glory, to be refracting a fragment of the divine light. That is not to set yourself up in competition with God. The sub-creator is not in competition with God. That is a form of humility. That's almost a radical form of humility and very different from the kind of outlook which is usual among human beings. This is one of the ways in which fantasy and the writing of fantasy uh, can lead to recovery, to return to health. It can be in this way even sort of morally improving. He doesn't place a lot of emphasis on this. He never preaches that very much because Tolkien in general didn't like preaching uh, and didn't preach, didn't like to preach and is very uncomfortable preaching himself. Um, But these are themes that you can see uh, coming up frequently. Yeah, Jordan? Um, I noticed in lines 129 to 130, the, I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. I, I noticed something really interesting there. Um, iron cra- the iron crown, which as I understand it is a symbol of the devil in many ways, it's his false reign, is capitalized. The golden scepter, which I've seen used to refer to God's own rulership, is not capitalized, it's lowercase. Yes, because it's not God's scepter, right? Yeah. It's his own scepter. Which is, a, which is a, he has a little lowercase scepter, right? God, God has a capital scepter, right? But he said, I just, I have my own little golden crown. It's, it's, made, it's made in the image. It's, it's a little replica of God's scepter, right? But it isn't God's scepter. But it's still my scepter that I was given. And darn it, I don't have to give that up. In fact, it's not an act of humility to give it up even, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's an act of humility instead to resist bowing down before the iron crown. Um, the crown, of course, right, this, the symbol of lordship, but it's not, it's not real lordship. We'll, we'll see the iron crown later on. This is one of the only things uh, in this poem where he is alluding to um, an item actually from his stories. Um, we'll, we'll meet the guy who wears an iron crown in the Silmarillion. Um, and when we do, pay really close attention to his golden crown, or his iron crown. Because what happens to his iron crown is awesome. Uh, <laughs> but, but there are like only a couple references to it, and they're separated by about 200 pages. So watch for it, because if you notice it, it's awesome. And so we'll come back to this in like two weeks and mutually appreciate the awesomeness. But, but, but pay attention for that. And again, the, the, what, he, what he means by the Iron Crown here, what, what the, the, the weight behind that phrase, will become a lot clearer uh, after, we, after we read the Silmarillion. Um, his last stanza, he gives sort of the alternative to the modern worldview, the final alternative to the modern worldview. Um, the final fruition uh, towards which the positive, sub-creative outlook tends, the mythopoeic outlook, the paradisal, the paradisical view, what it will be like in paradise. Then looking on the blessed land, twill see that all is as it is, and yet made free. A line to remember here, he says, when we're in paradise, we will see all 
we will see that all is as it is. And contrast that with what he just said in the previous stanza. What he says I will resist doing is denoting this and that by this and that. What's the difference? What's the difference between denoting this and that by this and that and seeing that all is as it is? See the difference? Derek, what do you think? I think what he's like saying is that like when uh, you're, you're in paradise, you'll, you'll be like seeing things for real. Like you won't just be seeing your eyes interpretation of it. Good. Like, uh, we could just be like see like here we could just be seeing like what I see is like this color someone else could see as a different color, but it just has the same name. And like um, our mind like um, has um, different um, interpretations of it, like very kind of and in some cases with the icon, very twisted views of it. So like in Paradise, you know what it is and can appreciate what it is. You're not seeing things, um, you know, through just this very skewed vision. Good, good. Yeah, the difference between conforming and perceiving something for what it really is. Yeah, yeah, Josh? And I think he's getting back to the language thing. Like he can use a visual comparison, but the same is true for words and he can interpret them yeah, yeah, thinking of words, back to the, the naming theme that he starts the poem with, right? To name something, truly to name something, is to identify, to connect a word with something's essence. That is, you know, names fall short of that. But theoretically, that's what it means to name something. Uh, and, but we can't do that well here. We can't do that fully. We can't do it accurately because we don't see things clearly. Resisting denoting this and that by this and that is a good thing because that involves recovery, getting past illusion, getting past appearances. Writing a myth which doesn't exist in the primary world may yet bring you to higher existence, to truths which are not perceivable directly by us in our current world. But in paradise, we will perceive everything. We will see all is that as it is. We will perceive the essence of things and we will name things aright. And then language will be healed. And communication will be perfect. And enjoyment will be complete. And those are the things that, he argues, fantasy and sub-creation are reaching for here and now. And they're the things that most directly, fantasy and myth writing, are the things that reach most directly past what surrounds us and towards those things. We can't ever really reach it until paradise. But that's the movement. In paradise, they look no more awry, and though they make a new, they make no lie. Important point. Just because in paradise we will see everything as it is, and that's what we were trying to kind of get at through fantasy and through subcreation now, that doesn't mean when we get to paradise we'll be done subcreating. People will still subcreate. In paradise, we're still going to be makers. Our natures won't have changed, he argues. Though they make a new, they make no lie. We'll still be unfolding leaves on the tree of tales. 
be sure they still will make not being dead. Only death, only, only annihilation, which snuffs out you and who you are in your nature. That's the only thing that could actually stop human beings from making. Be sure they still will make not being dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall, there each shall choose forever from the all. Just because you can see everything in its, in its true nature, does that mean that there's now no scope for what we would call creativity? No. Uh, in infinite richness, there's still lots of variety. Uh, it's, it's still infinite. Anyone recognize the Bible reference there? And poets shall have flames upon their head? Chris? The tons of fire from after Jesus left the apostles. This segment of the show brought to you by Foundations Part 1. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. The tongues of flame that descend upon the apostles at the beginning of Acts. What, uh, it's, uh, the, 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 the tongues of flame land upon them and they have, they, so they have flames on their heads. What is happening here, Kelly? The Holy Spirit comes down and touches them so that they can communicate with everyone. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes down, descends upon them, and unifies language. Each of them speaks, and, and everyone who hears them hears them speaking as if in their own native tongue. People, and it's the same people. It's, their speech is being miraculously communicated to other people. It's not just like they happen to like suddenly break into you know, Babylonian and, 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 and Latin and everything else. Um, different people hearing the same person saying the same thing hear them in their own language. The Holy Spirit becomes the perfect mediator of communication as he descends upon their heads in flame, right? This is, again... He, so he makes this image to evoke what making will be like, what that paradisical making will be like. Um, we talked about the perceiving and the enjoying. You're going to be choosing from the all and communicating perfectly and in power. It's not in conflict with God and with the Holy Spirit. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that that happens. But anyway, to descend from paradise, uh, (laughs) we are now going to begin what we will do for the rest of the semester, that is, actual discussion of Tolkien's fiction. Um, We start off with two short stories, first, Leaf by Niggle, and second, Smith of Wooten Major, (laughs) or Swooth for short, I guess. Uh, Anyway. Leaf by Niggle is weird. (laughs) Weird, I say, in the context of Tolkien's fiction. Um, He wrote it in the early 40s, um, which you'll remember is just a couple years after he delivered the On Fairy Stories address. And it's clear uh, when you're reading this, as I'm sure it was clear to you, that in Leaf by Niggle, he is sort of working out through this little short story many of the ideas that he was elaborating in, 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 you know, in, in nonfiction prose and on fairy stories. And later on uh, in his life, 20 years later, in 64, in, in he published the two of them together. Um, as, a, as, as one little companion volume, which he, which he titled Tree and Leaf. It was just the essay on fairy stories and, and then Leaf by Niggle to follow. Um, so he clearly connected these, these things too. Now there's something about this story which makes it very unusual. 
in Tolkien's works. And that is, it's, it's pretty clear that this story is an allegory. That's unusual. Um, Tolkien didn't like allegory very much. Uh, the way that he's in the famous passage in the foreword to the second edition of, of The Fellowship of the Ring, you know, he explains, he says, I have cordially disliked allegory and have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. Um, what he doesn't like about it is, well, there are several things he doesn't like about it. Um, one of the things he doesn't like about it is that it's bossy. When you're writing an allegory, you have a particular message that you're trying to convey. Allegory is a, is a, is a, is a, is a subspecies of preaching, ultimately. And I don't mean that as an insult. Preaching is, all, is very good in its way. Uh, but, it's a, but, but it's a form of that. That is, there's a particular message you're trying to convey. There is, y- your readers need to interpret your story, but there is, very clearly, a correct interpretation, and you're trying to, to, to kind of nudge and herd your readers to that correct interpretation so that they'll get the point. Tolkien did not particularly enjoy the experience of having that happen to him as a reader, um, and he wasn't real comfortable doing that to readers uh, when he wrote. <laughs> there are other reasons why he objects to The Lord of the Rings being read as an allegory, but that's a discussion for another day. This story, however, is allegorical. Um, and I think that, again, that's a reflection of what was going on in his head at the time that he wrote it. That is, he writes this in order to, and I don't think he really, um, he didn't seem to write this at the time, like designing it for a really wide audience. He was himself working out certain doubts, fears, uncertainty, and you know, just theories about, about art and about stories. Um, and so he did it through the medium of this, of this story, which is, Therefore, because he is working out some very particular ideas, uh, which is allegorical. Now, I want to start carefully by making sure that we're understanding the general allegorical framework before we go back to talk about some of the specific things that he's representing. Um, Of course, you're writing a paper on this story. You hopefully all more or less remember um, because it's due tomorrow uh, by midnight. It's short, but anyway, um, in which you're going to be talking about the value and worth of art um, as he articulates it in this story. But in order to get there, again, I want to make sure that we're understanding the allegorical framework. The first thing we're told about Niggle is not that he's an artist. There was once a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make. So he has this journey, right? He knows he has to go on it. It's sometime in the future. What's his attitude towards it? He doesn't want to go. He doesn't like to think about it. It never totally leaves his mind. He knows he should pack for his journey. But he puts it off and puts it off because he wants to do other things, like work on his painting, right? Then the driver shows up right after the inspector comes. The fact that we have characters called capital I inspector and capital D driver uh, are themselves some clues. (laughs) This is an allegory we're reading. (laughs) So the driver shows up, and what happens? Driver says, okay, time to go on the journey. 
But what, uh, what's going on? Well, um, it's, in my opinion, it's very ironic that um, you know, he's been helping his neighbor this whole time, and yet they yelled at him saying, you weren't doing enough. Yeah, Nigel has been very derelict in his duties. Houses before, houses come first, right? Houses before paintings. What are they going to do with his great painting? They're going to take the canvas and patch the roof of Parrish's house with it. You should have been helping your neighbor. Look, there's canvas and paint right here. Look at all this canvas and paint that could be used to patch houses. And poor Niggle's like, no, my great <laughs> painting. Poor Niggle. But houses come first. Anyway, time to go on the journey. And he's like, let me pack. And the driver says, too late for that. Should have been packed already. So what does he bring with him? A little bag containing some paints and notebooks. That's all he's got. There's nothing else prepared. No food, no clothes. When he gets there, when he gets to the station, first of all, he leaves his little bag on the train anyway. This doesn't do him a lick of good. And they say, no luggage, workhouse for you. Now, what is his journey? Any theories? Tony? It sort of seemed like he was going to limbo, and the voices were not quite sure what to do with him yet. Close, close. Uh, But you're talking about the destination. What's the journey? Yes. Death. Death. This journey that he must go on, everybody does. People talk about it. Parrish goes on his journey a little bit after. We learn uh, at, the, at the end of the first half that I want to talk about today, when the voices are talking, we learn that Parrish is at the workhouse too, arrived a little bit later than, than Nickel did. What's the workhouse then? There? It's uh, purgatory. How do we know? Because um, it's like uh, in... Um Catholic, which I know from being a Catholic, is um, you have to like go through purgatory first, and like, and if enough people pray for you and stuff like that, you'll be able to make it into paradise. Yes. Anyway, let's back up a little bit. Uh, purgatory needs some explanation. Uh, first rule, and that this is the thing that people most often get confused about: one hundred percent of the people in purgatory are going to heaven. Purgatory is where you go when you get saved. It is not a middle ground. There's not like heaven where saved people go and hell where damned people go and purgatory as the gray region. Purgatory is the one-way street to heaven. Everyone there is saved. So why do you go to purgatory? What does the name mean? It's a place of purging to get rid of your sins. Where where, Where your sins are purged away from you. It's where you go to get cleaned up before you go to heaven. You're saved. You've made the cut. You're in. But you're not ready yet. You're not ready for paradise. You need to be prepared. You need to be purged. You need to be cleaned up. So you go to purgatory. What does Niggle do in the workhouse? Jordan, what does he do? Name one thing he does. A lot of introspection. The windows of the workhouse all face inward. Yes. Good. What else? Yeah, Aaron? Yes, so dig nonstop. Good. That's the second phase. Yeah, digging, nothing but digging. Until his hands are raw and his back aches. But, that, but that's the second phase. In the first phase, 
What does he do? Yeah, Travis? Has to like paint boards one plain color all day long over and over. Yes, painting boards one plain color. He's painting. Hey, awesome. He's a painter. But he's not painting pictures. He's painting boards all one color. What else? What else is he doing? Liz? Yes, carpentry. He's like Mr. Fix-It of the workhouse. Going about the workhouse, mending chairs, doing odd jobs. Being useful in a small way. And the digging. How do these things relate to his life? Why has he been assigned these? See, I could ask this question in a different way and say, what happens to you in purgatory? How does purgatory work? But, as most of us don't have that much information about that, we will approach the same question from the other direction. How is Tolkien depicting purgatory as working? Why... What is the ration? What what is what appears to be the rationale behind these tasks, Elise? Looks like what he should have been doing instead of working on painting, like with the carpentry and the painting of the boards. Like he should have been. They said he should have been helping his neighbor and doing more tasks like that. So it's like he's kind of making up for that. Yes, he is doing continually what he neglected during his life. He resented going and helping his neighbor. And now, he's Mr. Helping His Neighbor all the time. Just goes about finding neighbors to help with his carpentry. Carpentry is also important. It's not, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not a cleaning boy. He's a carpenter. He's, he's building, he builds things and fixes things. This he didn't do before. How about painting boards? Like his occupation in life, but yet also unlike? What do you think about that, Chantal? It serves a specific function. Yeah, like what kind of function, for instance? Um, well, Where might you put boards painted all one color like that? In a, in a room that yeah. filters you? <laughs> On a house, right? <laughs> Houses come first, right? He, 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 he didn't learn that in life. Yeah? Tony? The painting also keeps him to finish things because he paints, all, he paints it all in color and once there's no more color to paint, he's done. Good. He can stop dabbling around like he always did. Um, whenever you begin to suspect you're reading an allegory, you should always start paying attention to names. What does the word niggle mean? The word niggle is a perfect name for this guy. Tony, no? You, uh, you keep fussing over every little detail. Yes. Yeah, to fuss with something, to fiddle around with something, to be paying perhaps inordinate attention to really small details. Stop niggling, one might say. Of course, ironically, and this is sort of beautiful, it also means what happens to him or how he perceives the intervention of his neighbors. That is... When someone pesters you uh, and nags you, they are niggling you as well. So niggle is what he does, and it's what, it's what happens to him, or rather, it's how he experiences what happens to him. Parish, the only other person with a name. So if you don't count inspector and driver as names, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. News church. Yes. In what context? Yeah, it's... Local. Yes, yes. 
the local church. The par- your, your parish is, it's, well, it's not exactly the church. It's the area surrounding the church, right? Every parish, every geographical region, small geographical region, <coughs> neighborhood, area, has a parish church where all the people who live in that region go. So parish means, in this, in this context, neighbors, neighborhood. So, I mean, he has a neighbor named Parish, who therefore, by his name, we seem to be being prompted to sort of see in Parish sort of the personification of his neighbors more broadly understood. What happens at the very end, thinking allegorically? What do the voices decide? Nick? Send him on his way. Yes. On to the next stage. And this is the important point that I want us to remember when we get to the next stage, when we get to talking about the next stage next time. It's still a stage. Um, they call it, what do they call it? What's the phrase they use to describe it? Capital letters? The name that sounds so attractive to Niggle? Gentle there it is. Gentle treatment. It's time for gentle treatment. And Niggle's like, oh, gentle treatment. <laughs> it sounds so good. But remember, it's still treatment, which means it's still part of the purgatorial process. But wait, we didn't talk about the second phase, the digging. Why digging? Well, didn't he um, neglect his garden when he was alive, so this is kind of making up for the fact that he neglected his garden. Yeah, he neglected his garden. Um, And uh, Parrish felt it his duty to bring that to his attention on many occasions, right? Do you remember where he built the shed wherein he housed his, his painting, Eve? Yeah, where he used to grow potatoes. He doesn't grow potatoes anymore. He has his painting instead. So he didn't do, he didn't do that much digging in life before his journey. Now he's doing lots of digging. Where did he get potatoes? <coughs> From Parrish who grew quite admirable potatoes. Um, as he points out in his defensive parish, he gave me potatoes at a very reasonable rate. Um, it's a plus in parish's favor, Niggle suggests. Now, with this framework in mind, what do we learn about art in this first part? What do we see about his painting? I want to start, I want to make sure that we're starting here not with conclusions but with observations. Tell me some of the things that we are told about Nigel's painting and about his relationship to his painting. I to make sure that we are responsibly uh, building some conclusions here. Marta? Um, well, he, it began to sprawl everywhere. It, um, it just kept building, building, building until it was, I, I always imagined it kind of the entire back wall. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just huge. It's, it's, it's it's obviously exactly as big as the shed will possibly accommodate, right, by the end. Now, notice how Tolkien describes the growth of the painting. Look at the language that he uses there, because I think that we can see, especially coming from on fairy stories, we can see something really important there. Page 101. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind, and it became a tree, and the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and thrusting out the most fantastic roots. Strange birds came and settled on the twigs and had to be attended to. Then all round the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out, 
and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. What do you notice here in how this is being described? Yeah, Bert. The sky is more of the trees growing and the land is being created rather than it's just being painted. Yeah, this isn't coming from him. He's discovering this. It's something that's just, it's, it's happening. The country opens out. The tree grows. Birds come in and have to be attended to, right? They call his attention to them. He doesn't generate them. Very much, we should certainly be remembering things like the tree of tales, right? Good, what else? What else do we learn about his art and about his relationship to it? Nick, you had wanted to say something before? Uh, I was going to say it's never finished. Yes, good. Good. It's never finished. There is a particularly important and poignant moment when the driver shows up and says, it's time for the journey, right now. Niggle, he says, but it's not finished. And the driver responds by saying, it's finished with as far as you're concerned. It's not finished. But now it's finished with. Remember that distinction. Remember those phrases, they'll come up again in the second half, and they're going to be really important when they emerge. Um, but yes, he's never done with it. And in some ways, that seems like a good thing. I mean, again, it's, it shows the, the unfolding and developing of it, but, it also, but he's also niggling, too. Um, part of it is also just that he himself doesn't seem capable of finishing it. So there's sometimes when it seems like a virtue that it's never finished, and sometimes when it doesn't seem like a virtue that it's not finished. And it's kind of complicated. Louise? Um, he really wants people to recognize it. Like, he wants the recognition and praise. Yes. Yes, good. He really wants other people to see it. He keeps it in a shed. Nobody ever really looks at it. Um, but there's that moment on the top of 102... What he would have liked at that moment would have been to see himself walk in and slap him on the back and say with obvious sincerity, absolutely magnificent. I see exactly what you are getting at. Do get on with it and don't bother about anything else. We will arrange for a public pension so that you need not. That's his fantasy. And we can see several elements in that articulation of the fantasy, right? One is that he fantasizes that somebody will come in and give him license to prioritize this above everything else, to tell him that he doesn't have to worry about anything else like fixing houses, maintaining his garden, or anything else. Of course, no one is going to tell him that because the laws say houses come first. The laws are very strict in this country, remember. But another part of that fantasy, at least just as you were emphasizing, is sharing it with somebody. What he most wants is someone, another person. But notice he pictures himself coming in, right? So on the one hand, it's like he's picturing community, but, but it's also really self-focused as well. I think we can see some good and bad going on there. Chantel? Um, something that I thought was kind of interesting is that he recognizes that he's not an especially great painter. He says that he paints leaves a lot better than he can paint like tongues or anything like yeah. that. But the leaves, you know, he, you know, are the one thing that he can really do. He does a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, good. I, I think that's a really important thing to remember um, as it's one of the things that frames this whole story. Nichols not an exceptional painter, um, which is important to remember because it means that the stuff that Tolkien says about art here is not something which just applies to great geniuses. 
If one is an outstanding artist, one can achieve these great things. That's not the message of this story. Even niggers can have something like this happen to them. He is the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. And we're told that not only is he not a very good painter, this tree about which all the fuss is making uh, is not really very good. I dare say it was not really a very good picture, though it may have had some good passages. The tree, at any rate, was curious, quite unique in its way. So was Niggle, though he was also a very ordinary and rather silly little man. Yeah, I think that's a really important emphasis in this story. Aaron? He gets interrupted but both by himself and by other people, and I love whenever he has internal dialogue where he's talking to people. It's like, yeah, come in, I'll help you out, but inside he's really angry about it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uttering minor swear words to himself uh, at these interruptions. And he's always thinking of his painting in the back of his mind. He's, I can't wait to get back to my painting. But he does let people in. He does invite people over. He resents it, but he does it. Though, not all that much. But, but, but he does. What about his relationship with leaves? As the title of the story is Leaf by Niggle, we should probably pay attention to that. What else do we learn about his, the leaves on his painting? Yeah, Liz? Um, he pays very close attention to that. Like, every, every leaf is different. Yeah, yeah. He's, it's, it seems to be a good thing that he is the kind of poet who pays more attention to leaves, who is better at, at leaves than trees. He, he used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch its shape and its sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges. He wanted to paint a whole tree, but, but leaves are what he was really, really good at. The voices, especially the second voice, um, who's the kind, the merciful, but authoritative and sad voice. <laughs> wait for it, wait for it. Brings up the leaves again. What does the second voice say about him in leaves? Kelly, do you remember? A leaf by niggle has a charm of its own, says the second voice. What else? Now, notice, first of all, just to to, to comment on that a little bit more. When the second voice, right, we have the two voices who are discussing Niggle's case. And the first voice is laying out the negatives, right? Spelling out the letter of the law. The second voice is making arguments in his favor. And notice the first of the favorable points that the second voice mentions. This is on page 110. Middle of the page, he says, There are some favorable points, you know, perhaps, said the first voice, but very few that will really bear examination. Well, said the second voice, there are these. He was a painter by nature. Just notice the significance of that. It is a point in his favor that he was a painter. Remember both things that this story has insisted upon, therefore, or has suggested. One, during the time before his journey, he was always focused on his painting at the expense of those other things. And the story seems to suggest that was wrong in him. There was a conflict between these duties, these, the, the, the laws of the land and the duties that were placed upon him, a conflict between those and his art. And when he favored his art over those, 
he appears to have been wrong to do so. And that impulse is corrected at the workhouse. But when the second voice comes in and says, what are the points in his favor? Item number one, he's an artist. He's a painter. Not much of one, right? In a minor way, of course. Still, a leaf by Nicol has a charm of its own. Now watch. He took a great deal of pains with leaves, just for their own sake. But he never thought that that made him important. There is no note in the records of his pretending, even to himself, that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. Unpack that a little bit for me. What do we see there? Elise? Good, good. His humility is the overall trend here, right? He didn't neglect things because he thought he was important and therefore didn't have to do them. He didn't think his painting made him important. And his attitude towards leaves is a humble one. He paints leaves not because he thinks he is awesome at painting leaves. He happens to be pretty good at painting leaves. But that's not why he does it. To indulge or manifest his own awesomeness as a painter. He does it because he loves leaves. And he loves beautiful leaves. And painting them brings him delight. He enjoyed them for their own sake. He is humble. And it emphasizes that his humility extends Uh, to his attitude towards the law law and towards other people, even though, of course, the second voice doesn't conceal the fact that, yes, he he was neglectful as well. Tune in next time when Niggle goes to gentle treatment and falls off his bicycle. (laughs) And that's all for today. For the next class, we will finish Leaf by Niggle and then look forward to moving on to Smith of Wooten Major after that. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.